I'm Dan Hartnett, and I'm a professor at Kenyon College. Whenever I'm socializing with my colleagues, I inevitably end up asking them questions about the fascinating research they do. I thought other people might be interested in our conversations too. So I decided to start a podcast to ask Kenyan faculty about their research, their fields, and how they get students involved. This is the Kenyan College Profcast. My guest today is Bruce Hardy, professor of anthropology. Bruce has been at Kenyon since 2004, and he's always active mixing teaching, research, and outreach. I wanted to talk to Bruce because I was curious about his work on Neanderthals and the ways he gets hands-on in his research. He currently holds the John B. McCoy Bank One Distinguished Teaching Chair at Kenyon and has a great reputation for getting undergrads involved in his work. I sat down with Bruce in September 2018 to talk about his work. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to talking to you. (laughs) So first things first, I've got a really nerdy language question for you. I've heard both Neanderthal and Neanderthal, and you're an expert. Which do you say? It is Neanderthal. Even with the H in there, the H is silent in German. But is there an ideological difference between people who say Neanderthal and Neanderthal, or is it just... Uh, people who know and people who don't. Mostly it's just people who know and people who don't. But even if you went to the original German and the H spelling in there is the older German, but it means Neander Valley. Tall means valley, but it's Neander Tall. They dropped the H much later, and you see it spelled both ways in papers, and it's just kind of a personal preference. Okay. Um, now, as a little background, can you help us situate Neanderthals in time and geography, please? Okay, so generally speaking, we're talking about a group of humans that lived between, let's say, 300,000 and about 35,000 years ago. Anywhere from the Middle East, as far south as as Israel and and Iraq, up to northern Germany and southern England. So you're a paleoanthropologist, and I don't entirely know what that means. So I'm going to ask you what some of the big questions your field is asking. So paleoanthropology really just means the study of old humans. And the kind of questions we're asking are really, where do we come from? Where do we fit into this whole thing? For me, it's asking questions like, if you look around, if you look at the fossil record through time, there's usually a lot of different hominines out there. And now there's us. There's only one. And while some people are, are very interested in, in finding out why we are the, the only one, they do it from a kind of we won and they lost perspective. And I prefer to think of it as a, wait a minute, Our spe- as a species, we are ecological dominators. How did we ecologically dominate everybody else to get where we are today? So the nomenclature is changing fairly rapidly. How are other notions changing? I mean, is it changing fast or is this something where there haven't been a lot of revolutionary uh, new ideas in the last, you know, 35 years? This stuff is changing like crazy. We're learning tons of stuff. We're finding new things all the time. Uh, Every time I'm in classes, I have to preface the class with, okay, we're going to tell you what we know now to the best of our knowledge, but that's probably going to change before the end of the semester. And it usually does. One last sort of really general question before I get to some more specific stuff that I'm interested in. Why is it important for us to know about Neanderthals and early hominines? Okay, for for me, Neanderthals in particular are a very relevant case to our lives today. 
and it really has to do with the way we treat other groups of people. So Neanderthals are always, they're, they're kind of the ultimate other. They're different than us, but similar to us. They're dead. They're extinct. They're, they're an extinct form of us. And so they're defined always by their extinction. What did they do wrong? And because they're dead, they can't talk back. So we can have all kinds of negative stereotypes about Neanderthals, and very few people are going to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, that's not the way things are. But when you think about it, our attitudes toward an extinct ancestor are very similar to the, our attitudes about different racial groups or cultural groups today. As humans, we're real good at categorizing and putting somebody in the other group and then going, and eh, you know, they're, they're not quite as good as us, whoever that us happens to be. But so for me, when I'm t talking about Neanderthals, I'm bringing it up and bringing it straight forward to today, to the way we, we treat minority groups. This is wonderful. I'm actually really excited about this because it seems like um, it seems like we're we're in a really good position to to ask some in depth questions. Now, I've got an idea. I should say my brother is a classical archaeologist. He studies ancient Rome, and you know, I in 1998 I had an opportunity to visit him on a dig in southern Italy, and the way they found that site was during a drought. They had some aerial photographs taken of the area, and in the field. Uh, of one farmer, it was very clear that there were two rectangles where no crops were growing in this severe drought, and they knew that it was almost certainly a classical site. How the heck do you find a Neanderthal site to dig? A lot of times we're digging sites that, have, that are already known. So what, what's good about, and what we should always want to do in archaeology, is never dig an entire site hmm. because the techniques are going to change, the methods are going to get better. Right now, we look back at stuff people dug in the, in the 1950s, 1940s, and we're like, oh, God, I wish they hadn't even dug it. They, they, <laughs> they didn't even do it. You know, they kept only the good stuff. They threw everything else away. And chances are, in another 50, 60, 70 years, they're probably going to be looking back. Can you believe those idiots didn't even do this? And we don't know what that's going to be because we haven't gotten there yet. So sometimes we're going back and we're digging sites that people had known about before. And really, so if you think about an area like southwestern France, uh, the Dordogne region. So the Dordogne River runs through that area, and because it's been there a long time, it cut through limestone, and you get a lot of caves and rock shelters. Hmm. And these are areas that provide natural shelter to some extent from the elements. And so it's not uncommon to find Paleolithic sites in rock shelters and caves. A site that I've worked on in the Loire Valley they wanted to, uh, there was a, a field standing among, among a bunch of grapes, and they wanted to do something uh, in the field, and they started to, to dig out this field to put in a building or something like this. And they hit stuff, and fortunately the, the farmer recognized that these were rocks that shouldn't be there and talked to one of the local geologists who then talked to somebody else, and so we discovered there an open-air site in that particular situation. Now, I already prefaced this question with you because it was such a burning one in my mind. Do we call them cavemen just because that's where the best archaeological evidence comes from? It sounds like, yeah, that's one way that evidence has been preserved, but it's certainly not the only... I hate cavemen. Yeah. I hate the term cavemen, <laughs> and I don't call Neanderthals cavemen. I believe that. Partially because of the stereotype that goes along with it. Sure. And the Geico commercials and, and all that stuff that you see, that's playing off that same stereotype. And... Yes, they did live in caves sometimes. 
but they did not exclusively live in caves. There's never been a hominin anywhere who exclusively lived in a cave. Mm-hmm. They're, like I said, caves are natural shelters. They provide a roof over your head. They're also kind of damp and clammy most of the time, so you're probably not going to want to stay there all the time, particularly in the wintertime. So we're, there's a lot of other stuff going on, and no, I don't use the term caveman. No, I believe that. Um, earlier on, you mentioned uh, DNA testing, you know, uh, DNA sequencing, other genetic testing, and how that has changed your field. Um, first of all, could you talk a little bit more about that? And secondly, do you know if that's changing the way people prefer, prepare to be members in your field? Really, we started work on ancient DNA in the, the late 80s. And what we do now is kind of what you could call shotgun sequencing. So you basically amplify every piece of DNA that's in a sample. And this is going to include a very small amount of of DNA that came from the fossils that you're interested in, plus a lot of DNA from the humans that have handled it, from bacteria, from plant, from all over the place. So when you look at it, you get maybe 6% of all the sequences that you find that could possibly be Neanderthal. Are there modern genetic traits that can be traced back to Neanderthal ancestry? Yes and no. Uh, it's, it's more complex than what you see. If, if you read the headlines, you see a lot of stuff. Um, you see that if got allergies, thank Neanderthals. So what, I should preface this by saying one of the things that we, we have found through the ancient DNA work and one of the big changes is that Neanderthals and modern humans were interbreeding and having offspring. I'd heard at one point red hair as being one of the possible legacies of of Neanderthal uh, heritage. Right, so what you have to, when you find stuff from the Neanderthal DNA, uh, you can take it and you can see what it, some genes we know what what they do, and we can look at the Neanderthal version of the gene and compare it to the modern human version of the gene, and we can possibly figure it out. So that's one where we found a variant of, of a gene that in modern humans produces red hair. And so the, the thing with the allergies is there, there's some genes that are associated with the immune system. And in Neanderthals, some of the, the sequences that we see in the Neanderthal, we also see in some modern humans, not all. So when we get, people say you share between, if you're out, from outside of Africa, you share between 2 and 5% Neanderthal DNA. But that doesn't mean, so let's say I've got 3% Neanderthal DNA and you've got 3% Neanderthal DNA. It's not the same 3%. So you could get variants within your genome that are similar to Neanderthal variants, but those aren't going to match necessarily with, with mine. I recently read an article from NPR called Ancient Bone Reveals Surprising Sex Lives of Neanderthals. Yeah, it's a sensationalist title, but the article talked about a bone found at an archaeological site. It came from a young girl with a Neanderthal for a mother and a Denisovan for a father. Can you put this in context a little bit for me? So, again, the Denisovan is is this group of hominins that... The, the cave is in Siberia, and it has a deep archaeological sequence. And most of the bones are all fragmentary. And what they did when they started looking into this, they, it's in a fairly cold area, so that's, you know, Siberia. That's good for DNA preservation. The farther mm-hmm. north we are, the better. The farther south we are, the more problematic it becomes. Um, but what they did around 2010 is they sequenced the part of a phalange from a pinky. Hmm. That was a tip of a finger bone. 
and they got a full genome, high coverage genome out of that. And so that gave us, and suddenly we said, oh, that's not a modern human, but it's also not Neanderthal. It's another group altogether. And so we've got this, and then there were a couple other teeth that, that we had similar findings from. And then the bone you're talking about that was just announced recently is another bone from the same cave that was unidentifiable. And we pulled DNA out of it, and that shows, based on the, the sequences that are present, that shows Neanderthal mother, Denisovan father, which means, again, interbreeding that's going on. And so that's the, the kind of exciting part, and that's where they're talking about the secret sex life or whatever is that <laughs> Neanderthals are, are made... They're not different enough from those to be separate species. They're not different enough from us to be separate species. There may be regional variations, but they're all capable of interbreeding, and they did. How much, if at all, should we think of the group you're calling modern humans as being us back then? I mean, if we have Neanderthal DNA, doesn't that imply that they are also us in some way? So I would say that all these groups we're talking about would be Homo sapiens. If you're making a distinction... It's at a subspecies level. Hmm. Um, it's not at a full-on species level because you couldn't have the interbreeding then. And we wouldn't have any traces of Neanderthal DNA if that, were, if that were the case, but it's not. Does this change the they went extinct and we survived narrative of this period? I would say it changes it. Yeah. I am probably in the minority in my field to say that totally. But I would say it changes it because we have some of the genetic legacy they are part of us. So they're a, one of our ancestors, not very distant at all. Other ways that you see that, again, from, from DNA stuff is a, a skeleton, a skull called Owase II from Romania. And we got some DNA out of that about two, three years ago. And that individual seems to have had a Neanderthal great-great-great-grandparent about four generations back. And this is before the newest one where we have the actual Denisovan and Neanderthal parents. And it's just a matter of time before we find the Neanderthal and modern human parents. So to me, they're all part of the same group. Do we know much about Neanderthal culture? I know this is something that you've studied based on a popular talk I saw you give a few years ago. So behavior is something that's a lot harder to, to get at. And when we're looking at the archaeological record for Neanderthals, we have the skeletons themselves, we have animal bones, and we have stone tools. And that's usually it. So if you think, even looking around the room here that where we're sitting, if we took away all the organic components in this room, there wouldn't be that much left. So if we think that all we're finding in the Neanderthal site is bones and stones, we're missing 90 to 95% of what was probably there in the first place. Fortunately, with the stuff that I do, what we're finding is some of that organic material, maybe not still in organic form, can survive on tool surfaces microscopically. And so we're starting to get a window into some of this perishable material that might have been, that was being used. So you also made a allusion to this earlier. What do you think of popular media representations of, uh, I don't even know what to say. I was going to say cavemen, which is what I think they, they probably are in popular media. Uh, you know, Geico commercials, the Flintstones, that sort of thing. They play on the negative stereotypes of, of Neanderthals. And whenever you see 
anything like that portrayed in the, the broader popular media, it is in a negative light. So the the Geico commercials, they're trying to make fun. Oh, so easy a caveman so could do it. So easy a caveman could do it. In fact, Neanderthals are not very different from us. So they're, they're saying so easy we could do it, <laughs> which doesn't you know really have the same impact. But anytime you do it, you see the um, headlines that are picked up in in newspapers and and online and stuff like that, and everything is turned negative for a Neanderthal. So, a few years back, they started talking about the fact that Neanderthals weren't as cold adapted as we thought. We we thought that their body shapes and and noses and everything were adaptations to extreme cold, and with more studies, we're finding then that's so much different. So, what does the headline turn up? Neanderthals' ugly faces weren't cold adapted. <laughs> Why they were ugly? I don't know. Why they had to be called ugly, Neanderthal's faces weren't cold adapted. But no, it becomes Neanderthal's ugly faces weren't cold adapted. Uh, there was one a few years ago that said, Neanderthal's nixed monogamy. Followed by the next one I found along the same lines, Neanderthal's really were sexed-obsessed thugs. And where that comes from is a study that I really don't like anyway. Um, it comes from looking at, at digit ratios. So 2D and 4D, your second and fourth digit. Whether one is whether the fourth digit is longer or the second digit is longer. Uh, psychologists like to do uh, correlations with this and because it's supposed to be related to androgens in the developing fetus. And what they did with, with this is they looked at um, primates and saw that a certain ratio, I forget whether which one was longer, meant they were from a species that was more promiscuous. So they, they would have multiple sexual partners. This would be from bonobos or something? Bonobos yeah. or something like that. Okay. Not, not gibbons, who are more monogamous, even though they still do stuff on the side. And so then they went back and they looked at Neanderthals, and they looked at, at Australopithecines, and of which we don't have very many hands. <laughs> but they decided that they fit the... Pro the promiscuous nature, and so those were the headlines that came up. Neanderthals nix, naughty, that way, naughty Neanderthals nix monogamy. That's what, what it was. Well, and you have then, to go for the alliteration. You got to right? go for the alliteration, yeah. In your time at Kenyon, you've done a lot of hands-on research alongside your students. Um, can you tell me about some of the things that you've done? Yeah, we've done some pretty, um, some pretty crazy stuff. So this really all goes back to... Um, about 10 years ago, no, it was a little less than 10 years ago, uh, a student named David Hull. So I started teaching the class, because I teach a class only on Neanderthals, a whole semester on Neanderthals. And we were making replicas of 300,000-year-old wooden spears, one of the few perishable things that has survived, from a site called Schoeningen in Germany. And these are big things. They're about two meters long. They're really thick and heavy. And when they're, they were found in among a bunch of horses at the Schoeningen site, and so the original interpretation was they were throwing spears and they were using them to, to hunt horses. But then people started going, well, you know, they're pretty big and they're, they're pretty heavy and, and maybe they just were close quarters weapons. So you get right up close and stab them with it. And that's what Neanderthals were supposedly doing anyway because they have high trauma rates and, and, and they weren't smart enough to kind of stand back five feet away from your very dangerous animal with horns or antlers and throw something at it. So we decided to, to kind of test this and look at the flight capabilities of these spears. So we went down to the BFAC and we cut down spears from sycamore trees and made them with stone tools. And then we took them and we, I had students throw them. 
and we discovered very rapidly that Kenyan students are not good spear throwers. Did, uh, were there rotator cuff injuries and this kind of not thing? Not quite, was it but just... no animals were harmed. Okay. <laughs> not even bruised. Um, so then student David Hall came to me afterwards, and because we, we also decided, so we can't get anybody to throw them fast enough to really test them. And um, Olympic javelin thrower can throw at about 28 meters per second. That's really moving. So I said, well, we can't do that. We're going to have to figure something else out. And the student came to me and said, well, we could build a ballista. And a ballista is a, a, a giant Roman crossbow. And I said, oh, we can, can we? And he said, yes, we can. So we spent a, uh, part of a semester on the porch of Palma House with a circular saw and various other things trying to build ballistas. And, and let's just make a long story short. Once we got in with the physicists and got into to Hayes and the physics workshop, then we made some real ballistas. Thank you, Paula. That's Paula Turner. Um, and we made ballistas, and then we made a target with ballistics gel and a cowhide. So we made a cow box. And then we shot spears at the cow box for hours and hours and hours and missed the cow box a lot because the spears aren't straight. And then when we finally hit it, it bounced off. <laughs> uh, so from this, you learned. Well, so what, what we learned from this is a couple of things. So the one part of the experiment I didn't tell you about is that we did also use a sheep hide as a target. And that penetrated absolutely no problem. And so one of the things we're dealing with is hide thickness. Okay. So when we get a cow hide, we're talking four to six millimeters thick. And we're getting a sheep hide, we're talking one to two millimeters. So thin-skinned animals, these are perfectly good projectile weapons. Hmm. And so that would be include one of Neanderthal's favorite food items, reindeer. We have this at plenty of sites. Reindeer actually have fairly thin hide. And possibly bison, which surprisingly have a, a thin hide too. But... Other things like aurochs or woolly mammoths or stuff like that, these aren't going to penetrate, at least not at the speeds we were throwing, which was only about 20 meters per second. So we've still got more work to do where we can throw it a little bit faster and see if we get a little more speed, are we going to get penetration? I do have to ask you, since you've mentioned attempts to throw the spear, is that the picture on your Kenyan <laughs> webpage, on your faculty profile webpage where you're throwing a spear? Yes, and that comes from the, one of the first <laughs> days we ever did it. And the thing that really got us, that took us down this rabbit hole was Dave Heidhouse was out there with me. He set up two hay bales for me. And I got back, four students came down. I got back about 15 meters, nice, nice good distance. And I threw that spear, and the first throw stuck about 16 inches into the hay bale. And I probably didn't hit it again the rest of that day. <laughs> but that first one went straight in, and I'm like, yeah, we can do this. Are there other things that you've done with students that felt sort of illuminating in regard to what you study professionally? Oh, absolutely. So um, one of the things that, that talking about Neanderthals in cold is everybody assumes that they were just they toughed it out. They were in cold conditions sometimes, but they didn't have fitted clothing like modern humans would have. They may have had some furs they draped over themselves, but they couldn't make clothing. It's all the assumption that they were dumb. Because the evidence that is cited is, is they don't, we don't find any bone needles. And we do in the upper Paleolithic, which is the next period with only modern humans, but not till about 28,000 years ago, and then only at some sites. But there's the assumption that if you don't have a bone needle, you can't sew a seam. 
And so I sat down with a student a few years ago for a summer science project, and we looked at all the ethnographic literature and found, I don't know, 20, 30 cultures around the world who used thorns or just wooden needles because if you want to make a needle out of bone, you've got a lot of time on your hands because carving bone with a stone tool, which is all you've got to make it with, takes a really long time. Some of the trees around here, hawthorns and stuff like that, you just go and you break a needle off. You better be careful because <laughs> those things are really sharp. And then we were able to make, to basically sew with those. Or even if we use something that wasn't that sharp, if you take a, a broken bone and use it as a punch, and we've got broken bone all over Neanderthal sites, then you create a hole and you thread through a piece of, of leather or something like that, and you've got a seam. Now, does that mean Neanderthals were making clothing? No. Not necessarily. Does it mean they lack the technology to do so? They, they're making, they're using wood, they're working wood to make those spears. So they have the ability to do it. And you cannot, you cannot get, you cannot take away clothing from them based on negative evidence. You know, Bruce, um, I alluded earlier to the fact that I'd seen you give a popular presentation I think it was on a parent's weekend or a family weekend here at Kenyon, maybe about six or seven years ago. And one sentence that you uttered it has always stuck with me since then. And it sounds like you're, you're, you're actually dancing around that a little bit right now. And that is, lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It's a time-worn phrase, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And it really goes back to this article that was written by a colleague of mine, John Speth, from the University of Michigan. It's a very strange article. It's in World Archaeology. But he wrote to the editor, and he said, I want special permission to write an article with no citations. Because I'm going to sort of tell it like it is, as many of these people that I, that I would normally cite in an academic article are my friends and colleagues, and, and I don't really want to make enemies of them. But the, and the, the editor agreed, the article is entitled, Newsflash, Neanderthals convicted of gross incompetence based on negative evidence. And that's where he goes through and says, essentially, we say Neanderthals can't do any of this stuff because we haven't found them doing it. And you can't argue from negative evidence. You just came back from a conference on Neanderthals in Gibraltar. Uh, and I should say you are wearing your Neanderthal conference t-shirt to this interview. It couldn't be more perfect. Did you present a paper? Yes, I got to talk about Neanderthal diet. Um, and really kind of gave an, an overview of, of diet and then talked about some of the things that I've been finding recently that I think really changes the picture. So one, uh, we, we published on this a, a few years ago from a site in southern France called Abri de Maras, which is about 50,000 years old. We f started finding, on the surface of stone tools, we started finding fibers that were twisted. And they didn't make any sense because they shouldn't, plant fibers that I find, if you're chopping up plants, they don't get twists in them. And I've always discounted these as, as modern things because we've got, we're wearing twisted fibers right now. And if that falls on there, but you can usually tell when something's new and something's old. And this stuff was old. This stuff wasn't anything new on there. So we thought, you know, maybe, is this, is this the first evidence of, of fiber technology, of string? Of, of cordage. And more recently, and this is not yet published, we're, we're currently reworking a manuscript right now uh, to send to Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, uh, we found a cord. We found a, a 
six millimeter long three ply cord made from some kind of tree bast inner bark of, of a tree and it's got individual bundles of fibers twisted one way called an S twist and those fibers are twisted back around each other in a Z twist it's a three ply cord no. is that going to be the next thing you're going to do with students teach them how to make S twists and Z twists or we've already done some oh have you there have been a couple <laughs> yeah because once once we found the twisted fibers to start with I said oh we've got, we've got to do cordage experiments and so we started going and picking nettles and cattails and all this other stuff and twisting them into making bags and everything and that's actually some of the some of the work that I've done with with students experimentally is what I'm relying on in terms of this identification of, of my work in the past hmm. on the Neanderthal stuff so this the experimental work I do has direct impact on what I um, what I see and what I can identify through the microscope. So is it primarily diet and cordage that you're working on right now? I mean, or are there other topics that are that are so across your plate? What I'm real I'm interested in, in larger picture things, but what my direct research does is to look at the surfaces of stone tools, see what's preserved there, and often talk about what a tool's function might have been. So find bits of, of hair and feathers and, and wood and talk about woodworking and and um, started finding fish scales. Fish don't preserve very well. We started finding fish scales, so that was a clue that fish were a part of the Neanderthal diet. Um, it kind of depends on what I find next. Hmm. So, so in some ways, I don't know what I'm going to find. I wasn't sure I was going to find cordage, and I suppose I can hint at what I might have found last summer on the same site from Abrita Maras. If you like, you don't you don't have to uh, to. Well, th there's a lot of work to confirm this. Okay. But let's just say that fiber technology, maybe we've also got weaving. Wow. Okay. It's it's that's very exciting. It's part of the same. You know, it's an extension of the same kind of thing, and it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And I've got a lot of work to do to to confirm this, but I'm seeing some stuff on the tools that look like you've got plant res plant parts that are running one direction, and then another piece coming under the other direction, and if it's probably weaving, we'll see. <laughs> I may maybe talk to me in a few years. I may say, oh, that weaving thing. No, I was wrong about that. <laughs> but I, I don't think so. Okay, I. I do want to ask everyone the same sort of two questions to, an, to, to end. One of them is, are there typical questions that curious people ask you? Let's say you're at a barbecue or something. When they find out that you're an anthropologist and how do you answer? So one of the things that they tend to ask, usually it's if you, even if you use anthropologist, is so, so have you found any dinosaurs? Which, of course, is a paleontologist, not an archaeologist or an anthropologist. And the answer to that is a little bit more complicated for me because when I was in high school, I did Cretaceous paleontology. Oh. In Alabama, where I'm from, there's a, a Cretaceous belt of sediment that runs across there. And in addition to running around and digging up archaeological sites, I also did Cretaceous paleontology, digging up mosasaurs and giant sharks and other things. Not really any dinosaurs because it was an offshore area. Hmm. But, so no land dinosaurs. So I have done that. But that's one question that I always get. And before I let you go, is there one thing you wish non-anthropologists knew about your field? Well, so anthropology in general, and this is going to sound arrogant on my part, is uh, we do tell this to, to students and, and to prospective students. Anthropology is like liberal arts on steroids. I mean, we do humans, but we do humans all across the board. So a lot of what we're doing that is different 
than other people, different than other disciplines, is you bring the biology into it, but not in a way that says the biology has primacy. Hmm. So we're interested in human variation. We're interested in genetics. But that is not in a vacuum because we are biocultural creatures. Our culture influences our biology. Our biology influences our culture. We can't tease those two apart. Bruce, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being the first guest on the on the podcast here. Thank you for letting me talk about Neanderthals more. I really appreciate it. Thanks. This episode was recorded at the Wright Center in downtown Mount Vernon in the beautiful facilities of the Department of Dance, Drama, and Film. My thanks go to my editor and junior producer, Elizabeth Aduma, Kenyan Class of 2020, for making the podcast sound professional. My appreciation also goes to Martha Gregory, who recorded this episode. And I would be remiss if I did not note that the Center for Innovative Pedagogy at Kenyon has funded this project and consulted on it since the beginning.